0: This morning I asked you how much a soul is worth to you. Tonight I'd like to ask you how much is a cup of water worth to you? How much would you give me for my cup of water? If you were really thirsty, perhaps, about what it's worth, two cents, because that's about what it is worth. So why did Jesus make such a big deal about it? I think you know that he did, for he said... If anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Did Jesus really mean that? Did he really mean that something so inconsequential as the act of giving a cup of water to one of the least human beings on earth would have an eternal reward. And if he really meant that, what exactly did he mean and why? Though we rarely think of it this way, water really is the basic element of life. Water, in a sense, is life. They say that our body is 60% water, our brains are 70% water, our blood is 80% water, our lungs are 90% water, And yet we hardly give water a second thought, at least on this side of the world. I hope this wasn't true, but some of you this morning or this afternoon may have taken a single Kleenex and dropped it in the toilet bowl and flushed it down using more clean water than 800 million people around the world have access to in an entire week. Did you know that the lack of clean water is actually the cause of more deaths worldwide in any given year than is war? Since I began speaking just a couple of minutes ago, six children under the age of five have died somewhere in the world as a result of waterborne illnesses. That's the equivalent of six jumbo jets full of little children every single day. One of those children, a nine-month-old little girl who, uh, whose father lives in one of the countries where we have some workers in a Central Asian country, she died recently from diarrhea and dehydration. People in that country actually believe that when a child has uh, diarrhea, uh, the way you deal with it is you don't give them anything to drink. And so that little child lost her life, literally, for a lack of a cup of water. Our doctors who work in that country give um, training skills in, in, in basic hygiene and birth life-saving skills. That man didn't get the training soon enough. Another man who was in that same training came up to him afterwards and he said, if I had had this earlier, three of my children would not have died. I have to wonder whether Jesus might not have had in his mind, looking centuries down the road, even some of these little ones when he said what he said in this verse in Matthew chapter 10. I want you to look with me tonight at what he says there and to share with you a couple simple principles that I believe each of us needs to understand. So I'm going to read just the last two verses of Matthew chapter 10. Actually, the last three verses, beginning at verse 40. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. A while back I received a a note from a good friend of ours who has supported our ministry for many years. And he said this, I pray regularly that God would use me in a capacity like yours, and I long for the day when I would be free to engage in real ministry. Well, I understand my friend's uh, desire to be used by God, I have to admit that it it somehow troubles me that somehow we have convinced a man who spends 50 hours every week rubbing shoulders with unsaved people all over the place through his work, that somehow we have convinced him that he is not engaged in real ministry, while someone like me who spends almost all my time with believers is involved in real ministry. If what Jesus had to say when he said that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, if that has any bearing on the subject, which of the two of us is engaged in real ministry? I would suggest both of us are, and certainly my friend is. What would Jesus say to people like my friend? or to people like you about real, significant ministry in his kingdom. There are two simple truths contained in these verses that I think in, in many respects have escaped the notice of millions of Christians leaving them effectively sitting on the sidelines rather than engaging in the ministry that God has called them to. The first of those truths is simply this, you have what you need. You have what they need. If you are a follower of Jesus who loves God passionately and loves people sacrificially, you already have what is needed for real, significant ministry. Jesus said you don't have to be the preacher to get the preacher's reward. You do not have to, you do not have to quit your job and become a traveling evangelist to get a righteous man's reward. You do not have to have a seminary degree to make a difference. You do not have to write a theology of missions to make a disciple. You do not have to be able to preach like Andy Stanley to bring God's love to life in this world. Listen, you do not have to take the cup of water that is in your hand and exchange it for the cup of communion in your pastor's hand in order for you to be engaged in real, valid ministry. Whatever God has given you to do, He has given you to do it as full-time ministers of the gospel. When Jesus says that even a cup of water given to one of these little ones. He wasn't raising the bar on significant ministry. He was putting it right down there where any one of us could access it. And for those who were still having trouble believing that he could really mean that, he states it emphatically, all kinds of emphatic words. If anyone he says, gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose his reward. So listen up. Even a cup of cold water is a valid tool for ministry. Meeting the simplest physical need of the least human being on earth matters. It counts. It is eternally significant. If God can use a cup of water, certainly he can use what he has put in your hand. He can use the passion that he has put in your heart. He can use the profession that he has put on your resume to impact the nations. And yet somehow we have convinced many people like you that what you do every day is not real ministry. Many of us know the name David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby, 490 stores nationwide, about $2.5 billion in annual sales. Green tells a story of his journey to discovering his God-given significance. He was the son of a pastor, he had five other siblings in the family, and all of them learned their work ethic by picking cotton to help support the family. When David Green was in high school... He was involved in a class in which he had to do some practical work in a five-and-dime store. And doing that, he discovered that he loved retail. But this is what he said. All five of my siblings followed my father's footsteps and went into a traditional pastoral life. After I went into retail, I thought I was a second-class Christian. It took me years before I understood that God had a purpose for me to fulfill. Imagine that. He didn't think he was significant. He thought he was second class to someone like me, and yet God had wired him for retail. I'm I'm thankful he learned that because he is impacting the world today through his business. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul called politicians? No, he didn't call them that. I know what you're thinking. No, he didn't call them what we uh, sometimes want to call them. He said this, the one in authority is God's servant. Many translations say God's minister. They Use the word uh, synonymously. God's servant for your good. Then he says it again. They are God's servants to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Then he says it again. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Did you get that? Paul calls them God's servants who are in full time ministry. Now, if he says that about politicians, guess what? It's true of you too. Every one of you are called to full-time ministry. It is a misnomer for me to stand up here and say, let me tell you when I was called to full-time ministry, as if I'm the only one in full-time. Well, me and Pastor Paul and, and Pastor Paul and the rest of you are called to nothing. That's a bunch of garbage. Every one of you is called to full-time ministry. Martin Luther was correct when he said it is pure invention that pope, bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate. Well, princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. That is indeed a fine bit of lying and hypocrisy. All Christians are truly called to the spiritual estate. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, as they call them, except that of their work. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. How many hundred years ago did he say that? 500 years? And we are still living like this false dichotomy between those like myself and the rest of you. It is high time we stop denigrating the high calling of serving God with whatever he has put in our hands. So what does he put in your hands? Well, let me mention just a few things that are in really in most of our hands here in the West. I've already mentioned Water. We have clean, accessible water. The leading cause of illness and death worldwide is contaminated water from poor sanitation. 800 million people in the world today have no access to clean water. 1.1 billion people still practice open defecation. They have absolutely no sanitary services. 2.5 billion people, about 40% of the world, lack access to adequate sanitation. So nearly 10,000 people every day die for lack of clean water. Some of you have professional skills that could change that. For a father like the one that I told you the story of in the beginning, your two cents worth can literally change the world for someone. And I'm not talking about simply making a donation to the World Health Organization. Why should we, as followers of Jesus, give to secular humanitarian organizations the privilege that he has entrusted to us? For they cannot give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. But we can, because we are his followers. Vicky and her husband left the U.S. a couple of years ago to teach basic life skills and hygiene in the Middle East. She had just made a, uh, a visit, uh, bringing groceries to an orphan family whose teenage daughter was now the head of the family. And she was just stepping back out the door to return home when around the corner came a group of women wearing burkas. And just as they passed in front of Vicky, one of them dropped to the ground from heat exhaustion and began dry heaving. Vicki says, I always carry water in my purse, so I rushed to the woman's side and offered her a drink. Though the neighborhood is unwelcoming to foreigners like me, whom they have been told are infidels, the family I had just visited stood in their doorway with a mixture of amazement and pride to be identified with the foreigner who so obviously cared about people. You can count on it. Vicki has an open door to ministry because of a little bit of water. You have water. God might be nudging some of you who have a skill set to do that kind of thing in another part of the world. Perhaps health care or community development, sanitation, clean water solutions, or other related fields to go to work with our team there in Central Asia to bring God's love to life using something as simple as clean water. Secondly, you have English. Listen to me, truly, truly, I say to you, it is no coincidence that you speak the language that the entire world today wants to speak. English is a language of opportunity, and there is hardly a nation on earth that is not looking for native English teachers. One of the most amazing open doors that we have right now in Crossworld is an invitation from the government of Thailand to send them as many English teachers as we can find for their public schools. They will pay a salary, they will provide housing, and they have even said, even though they are a predominantly um, uh, Buddhist, Hindu, or Muslim culture, just about uh, a couple percent uh, believers in that whole country, they have even said we're welcome to use the Bible as a text in their classrooms, because they want their nation literate in English. And do you know who's taking those jobs? I'm not exaggerating when they said we could, we could send them as many. In fact, they said, send us a thousand. The first time we met with them about three years ago, they said, would you send us a hundred by October? And my coworker John said, this October? And they said, yeah. Well, we haven't come anywhere near that. But you know who's taking these jobs? Secular university students, unbelievers who want to go and see the world and have a good time, and they go and they take these jobs and they party all night, they come in hung over in the morning and they last for a couple jobs and then they, a couple months rather, and then they leave, leaving the school system high and dry. And so the government of that country has come to the little evangelical church in that country and has said, could you help us get good teachers? Amazing open door. Some of you need to talk to me about that before this week is over. A third thing that we have is jobs. Jim Clifton, the chairman of Gallup, recently released a book entitled The Coming Job Wars. It was the result of a decade-long study of global needs, um, and it, 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 this is what he writes. He says, six years into our global data collection effort, we may have already found the single, most searing, clarifying, helpful, world-altering fact. That's like a, a truly, truly statement. He said, we may have already found the single, most searing, clarifying, helpful, world-altering fact. So listen to what he says. What the whole world wants is a good job. Then he goes on and he says, this is one of the most important discoveries Gallup has ever made. At the very least, it needs to be considered in every policy, every law, and every social initiative. All leaders, policymakers and lawmakers, presidents and prime ministers, parents, judges, priests, pastors, imams, teachers, managers and CEOs need to consider it every day in everything they do. That is as simple and as straightforward an explanation of the data as I can give. Whether you and I were walking down the streets in Khartoum, Cairo, Berlin, Lima, Los Angeles, Baghdad, or Istanbul, we would discover that the single most dominant thought on most people's minds is having a good job. If that is true, what do you think it would do if you as an entrepreneur were to go over and create some work for people who have that as the foremost thought in their mind? It would open doors like crazy. We are so serious in Crossworld about sending godly um, business entrepreneurs to the nations as part of our disciple-making initiative that we have partnered with a like-minded, faith-based business development company who are working with us to help send entrepreneurs to the nations as part of our disciple-making teams. Now, most of you aren't entrepreneurs. I think they say maybe only 1% of the workforce are true entrepreneurs. But that means that there might be one or two or three or five in this congregation who could consider taking their God-given wiring and doing it in a part of the world where they could bring God's love to life by creating jobs. Others of you, most of you, have jobs that are transportable. In other words, you're not an entrepreneur, but you you could take your job with you. We call entrepreneurs job makers. They know how to create employment. We call the rest of you job takers. In other words, you could take your job to the nations. Some of you work for multinational corporations who have offices all over the world. And you could actually take your profession and do it somewhere else in the world. John Piper, in his excellent book, Don't Waste Your Life, says this, For many of you, the the move toward missions and deeds of mercy will not be a move away from your work, but with your work to another more needy, less-reached part of the world. Christians should seriously ask not only what their vocation is, but where it should be lived out. We should not assume that teachers and carpenters and computer programmers and managers and CPAs and doctors and pilots should do their work in America. And yet, that is exactly what we have assumed. We have assumed that people like me need a call to go to the nations, and people like you just stay here. And the reason you believe that is because we have told you that. We have told you that we're called to ministry. You're just called to pay the bills or something. Piper rightly says, we should not assume that when we have all those professions, we're called to do it here. Do you know that there should never be another missions conference that goes by where we all sit in our pews going, Oh, I wonder who, you know, the next Allison's going to be who, who God calls to go and be a real missionary. We should be sitting there saying, God, did you give me a unique skill, a unique wiring that you might want me to take to the nations as part of a disciple making team? Wouldn't that change the dynamic of your missions conferences? Wouldn't it change it if instead of getting people like me up here all the time, you got a a marketplace person who had just spent the last five years among the nations using his job as a bridge for the gospel to get up here and tell you how God's opening doors for the gospel through his work? I believe God loves that. Cross World's Dream, as I told you this morning, is about sending disciple-makers from all professions who bring God's love to life in the world's least-reached marketplaces. And if you haven't already got a copy of the book, a better way, you better hurry. Because Larry already bought four of them. So, I don't know what Larry's got up his sleeve, but I think next week I'm going to get you to come up here, Larry, and tell them why they should buy one of those books, Okay. It tells you why we believe that God's heart is to send all believers from all professions to the nations. So you have what they need. So don't complicate the gospel mandate. Ministry that counts is within the reach of who God has made you and what you already have in your hand. But why is that true? Well, the second thing is because truth flows from good deeds. You have what they need. Why? Because truth flows from good deeds. So not only don't complicate the gospel mandate, but don't truncate the gospel message. In other words, don't only give them half the gospel. The good news was never meant to be merely a propositional message. It was also meant to be an incarnational message. In other words, a message that was lived by your life. In fact, if you paid attention to the words of the last song that we just sung, I think it was verse 4. Great great choice of song, by the way, Paul. Verse 1 was, take the cup of water. Thank you, Paul. And I think verse 4 was, to to add to your me- your words deeds that show your love. You see, the gospel is never meant to be only half a gospel where you just give them the words. It was meant to be combined with giving them your life, living out the gospel. I do not mean by that that the deeds deeds of love are a substitute for the gospel. I mean that they are a catalyst for the gospel. Truth flourishes in an environment of loving action. If any of you remember your chemistry days, you might remember what a catalyst is. A catalyst is a substance that precipitates or accelerates an event or reaction. That's what sharing your life with people does. That's what loving people does. That's what doing life with people does. It accelerates or precipitates gospel opportunities. The truest mark of a Jesus follower is not the words of truth that come from their mouth, but the deeds of love that come forth from their hands. And as I said, it's not either or, it's both and. Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you tell them. That's not what he said, is it? He said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. The Apostle Paul said the entire law, the entire Old Testament is summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One word, love. John wrote, this is the message. You want to know what the message? You want to know what the gospel message is? This is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've done that and love one another. You see, the gospel was meant not just to be something we say with our mouths, but that we live with our lives, that we take into life with us. Jesus actually weds proclamation and incarnation right here in Matthew using five parallel statements and one little Greek word. The little word is the word "dekomai," which simply means to welcome or to receive. It's a word of hospitality. Look at the five statements. First of all, he says, he who welcomes you welcomes me. Why? Well, because we look alike. A disciple is like his master. Secondly, he says, he who welcomes me welcomes my father. Why? Well, because he who has seen me has seen the father. We look alike. Thirdly, he says, he who welcomes a prophet, because he's a prophet, will get the reward of a prophet. Fourthly, he says, he who welcomes a righteous man will get the reward of a righteous man. But the fifth statement is different. He doesn't say, he who welcomes or Receives, he says, he who gives. Instead of receiving, he who gives a cup of cold water in my name. What's the relationship between welcoming somebody and giving them water? Well, in that culture particularly, it was really one and the same, wasn't it? That's what you did when you welcomed someone into your home. You gave them water to wash their feet and and to quench their thirst. It is virtually synonymous, the two. Here's one of the most powerful and I believe forgotten gateways to effective disciple-making ministry today, and it's the word hospitality. You ever heard that word? It's becoming a dying art in our culture, isn't it? Hospitality, but it's still in the Bible. And it's still something that Christ calls us to do. In Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is the epitome of what it means to practice good deeds. It is such a powerful and binding expression of goodness that to this day, if a Middle Easterner welcomes you under the protection of his roof, he is obliged to defend you against anybody who would try to hurt you. And Jesus actually puts hospitality in the same category as the ministry of prophets and righteous men. Why? Because truth flows from good deeds. People's hearts open to love, and hospitality is one of the purest forms of love that exists. In Timothy and Titus, Paul actually makes it a requirement for church leaders. Let me tell you, it is still a requirement that has not been revoked. So if you're a leader in this church, you are called to a ministry of hospitality. Now, before the rest of you start thinking about how your leaders are measuring up, let me also point out that Paul actually says to the rest of the church in Romans chapter 12, to all believers, he says, pursue hospitality. And this is a little Greek word there. It's philoxenia which just comes from two Greek words, philos, which means to befriend or to love, and xenos, which is a stranger or foreigner. So philoxenia, which is hospitality, is simply to befriend foreigners. That's what it is. I was um, boarding a flight from New York to Kansas City about two and a half years ago, I was supposed to sit on the side with only one seat. It was one of these little commuter flights. I had a seat assignment on the one side with one seat. I was real happy about that. And the other side was two seats. And as I'm going to board the plane, the ticket agent says, oh, you have a different seating assignment. She gives me the other one. I'm thinking, why? I mean, I'm by myself. I was on the ones. She gives me the other one. I'd see, and I'm on the other side. Well, before I could start grumbling to myself too much, as I started to walk down the aisle, I think God impressed on my mind, maybe he has somebody he actually wants you to meet. So I walk down the aisle. I sit down beside this young guy looked to be about 25 years of age. He looked to be of Indian descent. And I sat down and said, Hi, my name is Dale. Has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, I, no. I, that's not actually uh, what I said. Although about 20 years ago, I would have thought that by hook or by crook, I had to get that question in before the plane landed. Why? Well, because that's the gospel, right? You just give them the gospel. But I'm thankful that God is working in my heart, and I'm seeing that um, he wants my friends to hear the gospel much more than I possibly can want them to. And if he wants to open that door, he knows I'm ready to walk through. But that's not what I said. So all he did, I just sat down beside him. and said, hi, my name's Dale. Are you headed home or away from home? He says, hello, sir. This is my first day in America. I said, well, welcome to America. And for the next two hours, Ramesh and I had the most wonderful conversation. He was—he had just landed in New York. He was flying to Kansas City where he was going to begin his graduate studies um, at the at University of, of uh, Missouri in Kansas City. Before we landed, I said, Ramesh, my wife and I'd love to introduce you to American culture. Do you want to exchange uh, information? He said, oh, yes. That was the beginning. Of what has been a wonderful relationship, not just with Ramesh, but with about four or five of his Indian grad school, a grad student, uh, friends, and, and we have done everything with them. Um, we have we've gone to baseball games we've been on the disc golf course we've had them over for movies we've made pizza together they've come over made indian food together we've spent christmas and easter and thanksgiving we have done, we have spent untold hours and days with these guys i remember very shortly after we met them, uh, the movie Million Dollar Arm had just come out, Disney movie, and it had just come out in video. It's a true story about these American baseball scouts who go over to India to try and f- find pitchers uh, from amongst the cricket players. And so these guys were, had just arrived in America, and I, we said to them, hey, if you want to understand American culture, you need to understand baseball. There's this great movie called Million Dollar Arm. You want to come over and we'll watch it together? So they came over, and I think we made pizza, and we watched this movie. We had a great time together. As we were driving home that night, and there were there were five of them in my, in my little Hyundai Sonata, okay? So, you know, one in the front with me and four of them crowded in the back. And I said, hey, guys, I'm really sorry you got a crowd like that. They said, oh, that's not a problem. We put many more people in the car than this. <laughs> anyway, we're driving home. And, um, and I asked them the question, um, what's the most difficult thing for you about life in America? They didn't even have to think. They immediately said two things we have few friends and no way to go anywhere. I wanted to cry. Here God has brought these beautiful young men to our country, and most of them will never see the inside of an American's home. They say that 80% of international students who visit our country never see the inside of our home. If God has ever given us a chance to give a cup of cold water in his name, there's one right there, when he told us to pursue the love of foreigners. And yet today, to our shame, we are rapidly becoming one of the least hospitable, one of the least foreigner-loving nations in the world, aren't we? I like to say that that the number one solution to the threat of Islamic terrorism in our country is not to seal our borders. It is not to build a wall, although I think we better do the best job we can of screening immigrants and try to find out who they are. The number one way to deal with the threat of terrorism in our country is for every Jesus lover to make friends with a foreigner. If every one of us did that, there'd be like 15 Jesus followers to every foreigner in our country. Do you know why I say that? Because when you make a friend of a foreigner, your attitude towards them changes. And when you make a friend of a foreigner, their attitude towards Americans changes. And they say, this isn't at all what I thought Americans were like. And they also say, this isn't at all what I thought a Christian was like. So why does any of this matter? Well, I believe it matters because there are millions of water boys and girls in our country, that's you, who have been relegated to the sidelines, and there are billions of the least of the least who are still waiting for their first cup, not of cold water, but of the living water. And we have the means of getting it to them. So what should you do about it? Well, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's impossible for me to make the application of spiritual truth to your hearts because I don't know where you are. But as I've thought about how to wrap this up, i thought, well, let me just throw a few ideas out. Some of you are English teachers. And you could go just about anywhere in the world today where they are longing for native English-speaking teachers. Maybe some of you need to go to Thailand for a couple of years, or maybe for the next 20, I don't know how long, and take what you do best, the way God has wired you, as a means of reaching the nation. Some of you work for companies uh, who are multinational corporations, and maybe what you need to do is you need to go to the vice president of, uh, of uh, human resources or, or personnel and say, you know, the next time an opening comes in Dubai or Delhi or Shanghai... I I would like to be considered for that position. And then come and tell the elders of your church and say, would you pray for me that if God wants to open that door, he'd open it? Some of you perhaps, as I've already suggested, have skill sets that God could use to actually bring clean water to somebody in the world whose children are dying, very literally, because they don't have it. Some of you are entrepreneurs. God has wired you for business, and he may be nudging you to go to the least reached marketplaces of the world to provide what the whole world wants, a good job, so that they might encounter who the whole world needs, Jesus Christ. And then I'm sure there might be a few of you who are like me. You say, I'm not a job taker or a job maker. Uh, I believe God has wired me as a vocational Christian worker, missionary, whatever you want to call that. There's still all kinds of places in the world where you can go. Forty percent of the world is still open to people like me. I don't know how God is speaking to you tonight, but I want you to know that if you love God and you love people, you already have what is needed for significant ministry. And truth flows through good deeds. Let me pray, Father. We thank you that um, you have made gospel ministry so accessible to us. It is such a an amazing um, uh, message that it's a, it's it's surprising that you would entrust it to any of us. But we thank thank you that you have entrusted it to all of us, and we thank you that you have given us the means to bring your love. To life, And so, Lord, I pray that not just tonight, but this week as we go through our week, we might remember that you have called us to be ministers of the gospel wherever you've put us. And I pray, Lord, that you would be nudging some of the people of this congregation to be asking you where it is you might want them to do this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.